I may have started 30 seconds early for the first time ever. And what I want to do for our first question today is tackle a question I got a number of times on the video I did on the death penalty. You see recently, <clears throat> for those who don't know, I did a video teaching why the death penalty is a biblical concept. This doesn't mean, you know, you can just use the death penalty whenever you want for whatever you want or something like that. I did a careful, thoughtful teaching, a biblical evaluation of the topic of the death penalty. But I got pushback in the comments, which I'm actually looking forward to. I want to hear your pushback. I want to hear your thoughts on these things. But one of the things I got pushed back with is the debate or the discussion of like, well, Mike, how can you be staunchly pro-life and also pro-death penalty? Isn't there an actual conflict between these two ideas? Like if you're pro-life, then you, you think you can't you know kill a baby in the womb. Well, then you can't certainly kill a criminal on death row. And I just want to say that the this is a surprising to me how common it was to see this objection come in because it's as though people don't actually realize what pro-life even means or what justifies the use of the death penalty biblically speaking and that is when someone commits murder i mean this is the one clear case when somebody commits murder then the consequence is the death penalty according to scripture and i think that that goes beyond the law again there's a link to my original video where i unpack this all very carefully and thoughtfully for those who want to reason it through and not just like gut react to everything <clears throat> that link is in the video description here if you want to check out that video whereas with so uh, abortion there's no murder i mean the baby has not committed murder right these babies are not guilty of having done anything and so there's no justification I need a massive justification to take a human life. And so if a human kills another, and then we see that as a governmental thing, that the enforcement of the death penalty takes place in a biblical fashion, then that is appropriate. But it is not in any way in conflict with the concept of being pro-life because you don't kill innocent babies. And what I find as, as the real ironic and impossible position to hold is the very common view that abortion's okay, but the death penalty's wrong. I think that, and can I appeal to you, from a Christian standpoint, your morals are inside out and upside down if you think that abortion's okay, yet the death penalty's wrong. That is, I can't kill somebody for being a mass murderer with due process, with proof of guilt, with opportunities for appeals, with all of those appropriate things with absolute confidence of their guilt. I can't kill them, but I can kill a baby for any reason I want. It's just a woman's right to choose to kill or have someone else be paid to kill the baby in the womb. So I think that that is the impossible position to hold. It's impossible. You can't say that human life is so valuable. What if they're innocent? Well, what if this this baby lives and has a wonderful life? Like it, it just, all the justifications that people offer for being against the death penalty, but for abortion seem like moral insanity to me. And I, I want them to seem like moral insanity to you as well. They should. So yeah, I, I can be pro-death penalty and pro-life at the same time because babies haven't committed murder. And when you get a baby that has committed murder, <laughs> then we can have a discussion about that. Um, although there'd be an issue of accountability there. Anyways, so this is 20 questions. I'm Pastor Mike Winger. I'm taking questions, 20 questions from you in the live chat right now. You're already loading your questions in because my regulars, you guys know the drill. And I'm going to be answering those questions. Let me get my phone up off the ground here <clears throat> so I can try to take the first few of your questions. Question number one, I took from the previous video. This is number two. A Majesty HMM has a question. Can you address with... Uh, 
what John means when he says that certain sins lead to death and some do not? Is there evidence in this passage that suggests you can lose your salvation? Um, 1 John 5, verses 16 and 17. And I do know, although granted it's spread out over like two years, I do know I've answered this question before. Let me give you some thoughts. So we're going to read the passage together and then we're going to dig into it. Um, Verse 16 of 1 John chapter 5. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will for him give life to those who commit sin not leading to death. There is a sin leading to death. I do not say that he should make request for this. All unrighteousness is sin and there is a sin not leading to death. What on earth is the sin leading to death? What on earth is this? And all we can do at this point with first John is we can say first John doesn't tell us um, in this passage. It doesn't give us the details here. We're, what we're going to end up doing. I'm just going to skip to the end here is we're going to fill in our answer to first John by gathering what possible options we have for the sin leads to death. And then probably answering it by informing ourselves with other scriptures and other theological positions we've already taken, right? We're going to use our theology that we've gained from all of scripture to try to fill in the gaps of what we don't understand with first John. First John says there's a sin that leads to death and a sin that does not lead to death. It's either talking about physical death or it's talking about spiritual death. Does it tell you in first John which one it is? Uh, no, it does not. Okay, so you're going to probably answer that question dependent on other theological things that you're bringing in with you into the discussion. If it's a sin that leads to spiritual death, does that mean that I committed a sin, like say adultery, and then that's a sin that is leading me to spiritual death? Well, I guess you could say that's a possibility if you already think that adultery is going to cause someone to potentially lose their salvation. Or you could say, oh, it's apostasy. Somebody's part of the visible church. They're a brother. They, they appear to be a Christian, but they're apostatizing. They're rejecting Christ. And that's this, this, the one thing that we know is the sin that leads to death. Okay, so then you're filling in the gap of what you don't know with your theology of like once saved, always saved. All I'm saying here is that 1 John 5, I don't think... I don't think answers this question, at least not in my study of it. Maybe if I studied it more and more thoughtfully and spent more time on it, I would feel like the answer is right there. Currently, I don't see it. And so I bring in my other considerations there. Um, so First John 5, being that it doesn't give a detailed, thorough explanation of what it means, you're going to explain it based upon your prior theology. And that's not exactly bad. Okay, that's not, I, I wouldn't say that's eisegesis. What's eisegesis is saying that First John says more than it says. That would be wrong. That would be bad Bible study techniques. But what's appropriate is to say, I'm going to take what scripture says here and you and use it to inform me on how I plug in what scripture says here. And that that's that's proper. So as long as your theology of salvation is is good and right, then you're going to get the right answer with first John. I hope that, that that helps you. I realize I'm not fully answering all of the details for you, but I think it gives you like an approach, an approach to the passage that I I think is more um, to be honest, it's going to sound arrogant when I say this, but I think it's more humble and perhaps more informed than to simply import my theology and act like First John is perfectly clearly in agreement with me. I think that you're going to interpret this based on your theology. Uh, two Messianic Jews has a question. This is question number three. When in the research process, do you, one, know you have read enough secondary literature to comment on the topic, and two, um, Become confident enough to share your conclusion with thousands of people. This is actually a really tough question I have to ask myself all the time. Um, 
in fact, it's almost it, it's almost impossible to do this with a Q&A like I'm doing right now. So the Friday Q&A, you're getting, and I've mentioned this sometimes, these are my off-the-cuff answers. This is my thinking right now. This is my response in the moment because that's the nature of a Q&A. If I'm going to do a Q&A and, and you guys find it valuable, you, we both have to be working with the understanding that I'm giving you what I'm thinking of at the moment. I'm not sitting down with your question and working through it for hours to give you the best possible answer. This allows me to answer lots of questions I might never get to if I was to have that requirement. But then in my teaching stuff, like Mondays when I do my verse-by-verse -verse studies, um, you know, other videos I present that are more like prepared teaching, I'm going to be working more through the content here. Um, when do I know I've read enough literature? And when do I become confident enough to share my conclusions with thousands of people? And I'd say whether you're sharing with one person or thousands of people, we should feel a strong burden of accuracy and truthfulness in the content that we share with others. That That's like a really big deal, obviously, or should be obvious to us. I want to mention a trend because I, I'm, I'm out here encouraging lots of Christians to go out there and make YouTube channels. And I do want more Christians making YouTube channels. That's why I made a second YouTube channel just for that purpose. But I have a concerning trend in my head, which is this, or that I'm seeing online, which is that once a Christian starts to get some traction on YouTube or somewhere else, they start trying to speak to everything on the planet, right? And... It's not as though it's wrong to share your opinions, but they don't make the difference that I'm hopefully making here on Fridays of saying, here's my opinion, here are my thoughts, as opposed to here's the authoritative Christian answer to every single issue. I, I have a bunch of those, but I also have a bunch of thoughts that are just mine. So I want to make those distinctions and I would encourage Christians who are doing content online to be humble about how much you know about what you know. Um, people won't fault you for it. They'll respect you for it. So how do I know I've read enough secondary literature to comment on a topic? Um, ultimately, you don't, you don't know. But what happens is this. In the process as I read content, <clears throat> when I dig into like sort of the more scholarly type literature on an issue, like say a, a chapter in the Bible, I'll read like say in, in the Gospel of Mark, one of the commentaries I read is R.T. France, his commentary. Um, he has a more scholarly level commentary. And one thing he'll do is he'll bring out the debates. If there's a debate or an issue on a passage, he has textual commentary, theological stuff. He will bring that out for me. So he's going to show me sort of the scope of the debate. Once you find some resources that tend to show you the scope of debate on any particular passage or issue, you then just have to continue studying till you feel like you've got a good grounding on the scope of the debate. Um, that is going to be a pretty subjective opinion on your part where you go okay i think i have enough information here i think i've i think i've heard enough arguments for and against that i can speak to the issue and what i ideally want is i don't want to be surprised after i teach it with here's a new argument i never even heard now the truth is when i teach i often don't mention any of the debates to you guys i, I just wanted to come to the conclusions on my own at least then i decide later if it's worth teaching or not if it's worth mentioning or not but I don't want to be surprised. And that does happen sometimes. Sometimes that happens. And I go back and I think, okay, maybe I need to rethink this. Um, but yeah, that's the idea. Um, do you, how do you know you've read enough secondary literature? Have you got the scope of the debate um, and worked through each of the topics that are related to that scope? How do you become confident enough to share your conclusion with thousands of people? Here's an answer I'm going to give totally different. Don't become confident enough to share your solution. Instead, Share whatever you share with the appropriate degree of confidence. Do you catch the difference there? See, it's as though 
on one side, you've got people who are like, once I teach, I have to absolutely know the truth about everything I say. And so then they proclaim everything as if it's absolutely and unbendably accurate. On the other side, what I've grown to do more and more over time, and I'd encourage others to do, is only share the thing to the degree of confidence that you actually possess. So if you're totally unsure, then you need to teach it like you're totally unsure. And what you can do is you could share some of the scope of the debate, and then you let people know you're not really resolved on that issue. That's fine. I mean, this is what I do when, when it comes to Genesis, the early chapters of Genesis. What's Here's the scope of the debate. I'm not really sure what the right answer is. I can only share the confidence I actually possess. So that liberates you from having to be confident enough to share your conclusion. You can share the degree of confidence you have. Russell Rivermaster, question number four, says, are there any verses in the Bible where it clearly states or implies that rights like life, liberty, and property are inalienable and inherently possessed as opposed to being dependent on self-ownership? I'm not sure what you mean by being dependent on self-ownership. I feel like that's a buzz term that maybe I'm not really sure what the baggage is associated with that. So are there any um, verses or scriptures that I would appeal to to talk about people have a right to life, liberty, and property? Um, what we can do is we can look at, like, for instance, the first murder. Cain kills Abel, and this is a great tragedy, and the blood of Abel cries out to God for justice. Why? Because Abel had a right to life. Abel had a right to life. We also have in the Ten Commandments things like do not steal. In fact, you're told not even to covet, not even to desire what your neighbor has. So that's a right to property. That's a right to property. The, with even, you might say, well, but the Israelites took the property away from the, uh, the people who lived in, uh, in Israel prior, who lived in you know, uh, ancient uh, Israel before they were there, the Canaanites and stuff. Yes, but here's the, here's the, here's the thing. God himself owns all things, and he apportioned that land to Israel. Okay, so it, it took an act of God to make it appropriate for them to come and take the land of Israel. If God wasn't involved in it, then they would have just been stealing somebody else's land. But God says, no, no, I'm in charge of everything. So he, you know, reworks who who's going to have what. But yet, it still is theirs. It still belongs to them. I think the concept of ownership um, is is through, not only is it just there throughout the Bible, it's also in the law and the commandments against theft. That just means, you know, you can't do that. It just means it's wrong uh, to, to violate somebody's ownership, something that they own. In fact, you, you not only have to pay what you owe, you have to pay above and beyond the thing you stole in the law. Another example is when Ahab is king, um, if, our, if, if memory serves, forgive me if I'm remembering some of the details wrong here. Uh, Jezebel wants to take the vineyard from a guy, um, Nabal. I'm trying to remember his name. At any rate, she wants to take this guy's vineyard. And, and now they're, they're the royalty. They're the government. And they want to just take this man's property and use it for their private uses. And there's this, this major uproar. God does not like what they're doing. And so there's, there's an idea that, you know, government doesn't have the ability to just redistribute things like that. Um, now, on the other hand, here's something that really doesn't translate well into our culture today in the law of israel which we're not under the law but we can be informed by it we can learn from it every seven years check this out uh or excuse me every uh, every seventh set of seven years so every 49 years every 50th year ultimately called the year of jubilee now the year of jubilee was a real special day in israel and this was a day when all of the property no matter who was owning it now it would go back to the family line that god originally gave it to when they entered the land 
right? When, when, when Joshua entered the land, they apportioned the land of Israel out to different people. So the land would go every 50 years back to an Israeli family, native born Israeli family, people who it belonged to, who were given it by God so that the property rights of Israel, Israelites in particular were family line property rights. It wasn't just, I bought this, I own it. There was actually the, you, you, you might call redistribution of wealth, but that would be a modern term that doesn't apply here, really doesn't apply here because that's not what it is. It's rather ancestral inheritance being enforced as part of the law. Now we don't actually have, like in America, I don't have land that God has given to me and my family. There's no way to do this. And we're not told that other governments should do this with family lines going back or that kind of thing. It's just an interesting anomaly in the law that doesn't exactly apply well when God hasn't given you the land, but it tells you something maybe about private property, that there's a sense of ownership that's there. Um, another one you mentioned was liberty. Um, when it comes to liberty, I think that as a Christian, the one area where I, I, I would say scripture makes it very clear that I could use liberty as even a rule for disobeying the government is, is when my obedience to God, right? When my obedience to God requires disobedience to the government. It's to recognize that every individual citizen in every country has a, um, an authority that is higher than the government, God, right? Now imagine in, in atheism, there is no authority higher than the government. Like, if, I mean, if you're an atheist, there isn't actually an actual authority that exists out there that's higher than the government. You may, you may feel like your principles give you a reason to take a stand and, and I think you'd be right. You just would misunderstand why. But with a, with a Christian, you realize that there's a God above all who commands my obedience. And this is why early church, they wouldn't take their pinch of incense to Caesar, right? Because they'll obey the commands of Caesar, but they won't pinch incense to Caesar because now you're violating the domain of God. This is why many churches today are thinking, should I violate the command um, from government not to gather on Sunday morning? And they're seriously thinking about this, not because they're being rebellious, I don't think. I mean, some of them probably are, but that's a heart issue. In principle, there's an actual discussion here of if it's God's will for me to meet and government says don't meet, who am I to obey? And so for those who, like in Southern California, can perhaps meet outside, that's a viable option. But what if you're like, like up north and it's zero degrees outside and your outside options are nil? And so you start wrestling with this. I've recently been thinking about this more and more. Still don't know all the right answers for myself, but I feel like there are... I wouldn't tell a Christian, don't you dare rebel against the government here because if their heart is, in, is I'm walking in obedience to God, then I'm going to, I'm going to say, then you need to follow your conscience there. Um, there's an example of liberty in that case. I hope that that helps. It's not exactly Americanism. Um, no, but I think there's some biblical things to learn there. So let's look at the next question here. This is from Ruth Van Sant. Um, it says, God answered Hagar directly both her and many others before and after Christ, do you think God sometimes uses the still small voice today or only directly through the scriptures? And then she references Hebrews 1, 2. And I actually like that you reference Hebrews 1, 2 because this is a passage that people use to suggest that God does not speak like that anymore today. So for those who've never heard this before, listen in and think, why would someone use Hebrews 1, 2 to tell you that God won't speak to you like audibly today? Here's the passage. In, the, in these last days, well, I should read verse one too. God, after he spoke 
long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways in these last days has spoken to us in his son whom he appointed heir of all things through whom also he made the world and so the idea is that god would only speak now through the son through jesus um i don't think this verse has anything to do with the options god chooses to use when speaking to you individually i think he's speaking about god's corporate messages to to the world his primary way of speaking in the past was he spoke to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways but it was in the prophets right many portions and ways in the prophets this is only the prophets so when god spoke to hagar hebrews 1 1 is not talking about that because of that because hebrews 1 1 is not talking about times when god spoke to hagar or times when god spoke to abraham directly we're not He's not, it's not talking about that. It's talking about God's normal way of speaking through the prophets, that that was God's way of speaking to Israel. And then we apply that to Jesus. Now he's spoken to us in his son. Now he's spoken through Christ. Okay, but yet the apostles would still come and be the ones to carry the message of Christ. And even revelation continued, individual revelation. I mean, Paul says to Timothy, he says, I want to be biblical about this, okay? It doesn't matter if you're charismatic or if you're not, like, that's not the priority here. The priority is being biblical. So Paul wrote to Timothy that, that he should labor according to the prophecies made over him. There were individual prophecies made about Timothy, specifically about him. It wasn't just general revelation like what we, what we um, or I should say the special revelation in scripture, which is like written to the whole church. There was stuff specifically for Timothy. That's interesting. I don't think we should tie God's hands in communication and suggest that he cannot speak to us through direct communication either putting something heavy on my heart i think god can do that right or speaking audibly to me or sending somebody to tell me something um, or causing a series of events in my life to line up in such a way that I, I i think that god is revealing something to me through that now those things don't have the same reliability as the bible because I could be mistaken, right? This is this is the sure word of God, right? In scripture, but I could be mistaken about those things. And people are notoriously bad in that they will regularly think that what's on their heart is automatically from God because they feel strongly. Well, but feeling strongly doesn't equal from God, okay? So those two aren't the same thing. There's times when prophets received messages from God they didn't even like or want. But yet often people only hear from God confirmation of whatever they wanted to hear from God. And so that may be evidence that we have, and especially in the charismatic world, we've really encouraged prophecy or receiving messages from God. We've, we've wanted it so bad that we've stopped worrying about how true it was. And that is a dangerous, dangerous thing, I think, for the body of Christ and for individual Christians who make decisions about who they'll marry, about what, what major life choices they'll make, and sometimes justifying bad choices because they feel like God is showing them. And uh, that's a concern. So I, I don't biblically think that we can say God doesn't and will not speak to you individually. I don't think that's true. Um, after the time of Hebrews, after this was written, God spoke to John on Patmos and there's revelation that came and, and that was you know, not exactly the same thing as God has spoken to us in his son. That was a past tense thing in Hebrews, but there was a future thing where God spoke to John. So it wasn't over, even, even at that stage. So I, I just wouldn't use Hebrew in that fashion. Hebrews, sorry, Hebrews chapter one in that fashion. 
Um, so that was question number five. I hope that helps you guys. Look, I'm open to the Lord speaking to me. I do think God has spoken to me, although um, not audibly. Um, I think that the Lord has showed me things, has revealed things to me that really were from him, from God to me. I think that has happened a relatively small number of times. And I think the track record shows that those things were from God. One of the reasons I started this whole YouTube ministry thing was because I had this burden on my heart that I believed was from God and I didn't know how it was going to play out. I mean, the true story is that I felt, and I told my wife this back in the day, I said, I feel like there's something I need to do. It's not centered on our, our local church and I need to figure out what it is. I didn't know what it was. I didn't know it was going to be YouTube or online outreach like this. But I, I knew that if I didn't do this, I was somehow missing the will of God for my life. I know that sounds weird, but this is what was, it was like this burden on my heart. So I started doing research, trying to figure out like, how could I do ministry online? Because I'm not going to stop doing what I'm doing in my local fellowship. I'm not going to move. Um, and it was that burden that led to this ministry. And I think that was from the Lord. Um, Dilly guy has a question. Um, oh, sorry. I skipped one. Etro. Etro752. Dilly guy will come to you in just a moment. Etro752. Do you think that macro evolution is consistent with scripture since evolution works by death as sin entered the world through Adam and through sin entered death? So I do not. Uh, let, me, let me preface this by saying my personal opinion here. Okay. Do you hear me? Remember what I qualified earlier about our levels of confidence? My personal opinion is that um, abiogenesis and uh, common descent aren't historical facts. Like, that just, that just didn't happen. That doesn't mean there isn't a great deal of evolutionary change in even speciation going on. Okay, that's my personal opinion on those on those topics. Your question is more about um, not just evolution in general, but about the idea of death before the fall. Death before the fall. And here, um, I have spent a little bit of time on this, so I, I can speak with a little more confidence and let me talk about, I'm just about one issue, right? So I'm not, I'm not an evolutionist. So you can't think I'm coming from that perspective here. But I do think that the passages you mentioned, Romans 5 and Romans 8, they do not require that animals couldn't die before the fall. I do not think that they require that. I think it's talking about human death. Human death entered in. Is it possible that animal death entered in? Yes, that could be the case. Is it possible that animal death happened before human death? that could also, you know, entered in through this, through sin, that could also be the case. It could be either one. I don't think that when we say that um, death entered through Adam, I think it means human death. And so let me see if off the cuff, I can share with you guys a couple reasons why I view, view it that way. I didn't used to, by the way, this is a, a changed opinion I've had um, changed a few years ago. Romans 5.12, therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Okay, but do you just see the focus? Through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, so death spread to all men. My only emphasis here is that Romans 5.12 just isn't about animals. Animals aren't in view. It's humans that are in view. This is why death reigned from Adam until Moses in verse 14. It's really about human death even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, right? It, this is all about humans. And then it's about how Jesus saves humans and gives them eternal life. Animals just aren't in view in Romans 5. The other passage you mentioned was Romans 8, 21 through 22. And I'm asking us to be nuanced here and realize this isn't Mike saying animal death happened before the fall. No, no. This is me saying that these verses don't teach animal death didn't happen before the fall. I don't think so. 
Um, Romans 8.21, it does talk about animal suffering as well, I think. So that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of God, uh, the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. So all creation, according to Romans 8, was, and we'll go to one verse prior, um, creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. So Romans 8, to be strict with our interpretation, it tells us that creation was was subjected to futility. This includes, I think, death and suffering and natural disasters and all sorts of things. It doesn't tell you chronologically when this subjection took place. It can tell you why. It doesn't say when. The discussion of animal death is about when, not why. So animal death could be, um, at least potentially, I'm not saying this is my view, but it would be a view that I wouldn't I wouldn't say these verses refute um, would be that animal death was happening before that there were, there were um, things going on in the world where God sort of created it while it was good. He created it with this like potential for, for futility, right? He created it that way because of the anticipation of the fall of man. Like I would at least say, okay, well, you're not like unchristian. If you have that view, I'm not going to argue against you in that sense. Um, and I don't think these verses make it abundantly clear one way or the other. So Dilly Guy's question, question number seven. First Corinthians 14, 22, Paul says tongues are a sign for uh, non-believers and prophecies a sign for believers. The next verse seems to flip it though. I can't make sense of it, but I wondered your take on it. Let's dig into this. Um, I'm trying to remember off the top of my head. Sometimes things are at the bottom of my head. <laughs> Sometimes they're at the top. Um, let's read through this passage though, and see if we can pull out the, the issue that you're talking about. And if, if I have something to share about it, and if I don't, I apologize ahead of time. Um, cause I'm not, sometimes I can just load the whole issue in my head like that. And I'm not able to do that right now. First Corinthians 14, 22. So then tongues are, a, are for a sign, not for those who believe, but to unbelievers, but prophecy is, is for a sign, not to unbelievers, but those who believe. And then he says, um, and he says he flips it, but I'm trying to think. Okay, well, I don't want to read through the whole chapter looking for the verses that I'm referring to here. Um, tongues are a sign for unbelievers. I'm just going to give you my interpretation here to cut it short. <laughs> tongues are a sign for unbelievers when they're interpreted. When they're interpreted. If there's no interpretation, then it's not a sign for anybody. Because according to 1 Corinthians 14, the same chapter, Paul says that they're going to think you're crazy. If the unbeliever or the uninformed enters into your congregation, those are two categories. It's the unbeliever, person who's not Christian, and the uninformed. This is the person who's a believer who simply is not familiar with tongues, which guess what? Even in the first century, Paul thought there were believers who were uninformed about tongues, which means that every believer doesn't speak in tongues, as I want to always say over and over again, because there are those who cause harm by saying the opposite. How can there be believers that don't know about tongues if every believer speaks in tongues? Well, it's because they don't. So uh, tongues are a sign for unbelievers in the sense that when they're interpreted, the unbeliever goes, they're speaking the wonderful works of God in my native language, right? Now it's a sign. But if it's uninterpreted, which he'll, he'll go on to talk about in 1 Corinthians 14, then they think you're crazy. So that's the flipping. I think that's the, the explanation for the, for the flipping going on there. Um, prophecy is a sign... Uh, not to unbelievers, but to those who believe. 
um, which means that there's a benefit to the believer. And this is Paul's focus in 1 Corinthians 14. Prophecy brings a benefit to the person who's there, the Christian who's there at the time. And then if there's a, a, a non-believer there, it will still be, it'll still witness to them. It'll still have hopefully an impact in them. But the, the big danger, and this is what Paul's major point is, if the church assembles together and they all speak in tongues and ungifted men or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are mad? So the NASB says ungifted. Um, the New King James Version says uninformed. The ESV here calls these people um, outsiders or unbelievers, which seems like a strange translation to me. Outsiders or unbelievers. Well, if what are they? <laughs> outsiders and unbelievers seems weird. At any rate, they're going to think you're crazy. Won't they say you're mad? Won't they say you're crazy? And hello, churches where everyone gathers together to speak in tongues without interpretation. A lot of people think you're crazy and you think you're being persecuted. But Paul told you this is exactly why you shouldn't do it that way. Hmm? Right. Real spirituality is doing the spiritual gifts in the way that God, by his Holy Spirit, has told us to do them. So. Anyway, that's my short answer on that question. Uh, the flip-flop is just has to do with the condition of whether there's interpretation or not. Number eight, farmer's gonna farm, says my parents think religion is stupid and I don't want to evangelize them because they'll judge me and say that I'm stupid. Is that okay or should I try anyway? And if so, how? This is a bigger uh, issue than I can answer for you, but I'm gonna give you some advice. Farmer's gonna farm. And I'm gonna suggest um, two separate issues. One has to do with strategy, strategies of evangelism, being mindful of who your parents are, how to speak to them, how they might hear you, what ways you might minister to them and reach them. And two, a heart that will not give up sharing and proclaiming the truth of Christ. This is the most important thing. Do not give up a heart that will not share and pro that won't stop sharing and proclaiming the truth of Jesus Christ. This is what we all need because the the oppressive sense that you get from the from the personalities of those who don't want to hear it, who can't stand it, who don't like it, who might judge you for it, who might just you just think they're never going to accept. That attitude if it strips you of your heart of evangelism, then a great tragedy has happened. And here's our solution. Go to the prayer closet and pray, God, please stir up my heart for sharing the truth of Christ. Please stir up my heart for being confident and, and straightforward about the truths of Jesus Christ. I am the salt. I am the light now. Empower me to do this. Help me to be a bold witness. And you begin praying very sincerely. Like, make this the focus of your prayers for the next six months. Help me, Lord. Help me, Lord. Now, once you get that heart thing right, it's just about strategies. It's just about better ways to witness to them. Maybe for your parents, writing them a letter is better. Maybe for your parents, having you know having a sit-down conversation where you just say, hey, I want to talk to you about something really important. I know you, you may not want to discuss these things, but but can I talk to you about this stuff? Um, or maybe asking them questions. Like, you, you know your parents. Ask yourself, is it better if I ask them questions? Is it better if I send them a video? Is it better if I just mention things here and there? Maybe it's better if I invite them to church. You know them. Be thoughtful. What's the best way you can build a bridge with that person? What's the best way? And I think that's a good reminder for me too. So I'm grateful for your question because, uh, yeah, me too. <laughs> Going, okay, how do I reach the people in my life who maybe I, I've just gotten used to them being non-believers? And so I think you should try anyway. And it may temporarily cause harm in your relationship. Like, that's okay. Christians, that's okay. If your witness of Christ, not your rudeness, 
not your anger, not your narrow-mindedness or something, I mean, but your witness of Jesus Christ, your loving, gracious, but honest and open and straightforward witness of Christ, if that causes harm in your relationships, that's okay. This requires you to be a big person, a big person and say, that's okay. That's worth it. Um, JP has a question. Question number nine. Hey, Mike. Thanks for your ministry, and you're very welcome. Thank you. And thank you, by the way, I don't say this enough, but thank you so much for those who are supporting this ministry. I'm literally able to do what I'm doing, putting all this content out for free because of you guys. Spending my time studying and and working on stuff and then sharing it online for free because of those who support. I'm not even asking for more support here. Like Those who have been been supporting like you have been taking care of this ministry you're you're why we're able to make it happen and continue moving forward into the future and i'm just thankful so thank you guys for um for that um also how would you here's your question how would you understand the numbers in revelation 7 4 what does it mean by 144,000 were sealed does it mean only 144,000 are faithful christians um, and this is like a, a bigger question that i'm going to answer based upon my overall view of revelation So speaking of levels of confidence, my level of confidence that my understanding of revelation is right is like not a (laughs) hundred percent. I wish it was. And maybe one day I'll, I'll like dip into it again. And I I have a lot of requests to do the book of revelation. I don't plan on doing it anytime soon. I'm just going to be prayerful and thoughtful about these things. Um, but one day maybe I'll dig into it again and start fresh. And I have looked at different views of Revelation. My current view is the futurist position. I've had this view for a long time. I don't expect I'll be changing my view, but I'm, I'm open to it because I just want to let scripture speak. But from a futurist perspective, the idea that there's like this seven-year tribulation coming, that there's this thousand-year reign of Christ coming, that these things, while many of them are symbolic, they're symbolic clearly in the text, they're symbolic of actual future events that are going to take place. Well, in Revelation, in the book of Revelation, what we get... Um, and I think you said Revelation 4, but, pro- uh, okay, Revelation 7, 4, I was going to say, but probably we're digging down further. Um, we get this statement about the 144,000. Because I'm a futurist, I think that these are literally 144,000 people or close to that number. And they're actually a future group of people. It could be 10 years from now. It could be 1,000 years from now. I don't know. Who are they? I think it's pretty obvious who they are. They're 144,000 people. Sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. They're Jews. They're genetically Jewish. They're from the tribes of Judah, 12,000. From the tribes of, tribe of Reuben, 12,000. From the tribe of Gad, 12,000. From the tribe of Asher, 12,000. From Naphtali, 12,000. From Manasseh, 12,000. From Simeon, 12,000. From Levi, 12,000. From Issachar, 12,000. Do you get the idea? From Zebulun, from Joseph, from Benjamin. We have 12,000 from each of the named tribes. And Dan is not there, by the way, which is an interesting Bible study. Dan, which was the most apostate of the tribes up in northern Israel. They're not on this list. But these 12 are on the list. I think that they're actually Jews, future Jews, who will be sealed. This is my, my view. Now, others would have a different view. I think this view makes the most sense personally. And um, I wouldn't stake my salvation on it. Um, so what I think it means is that there's ultimately going to be this this really neat group. And they're not even the only ones that are saved in the tribulation time. I think they're a unique group of 144,000 Jewish men who are just on fire for the Lord and who are being used by God to do special ministry during this time, during that season, right before final um, judgment or before at least the, the second coming of Christ then the millennium. That's my view. So there's my answer. Um, For those who have a different answer, 
who say the 144,000 are really symbolic of this or that. Um, I think those answers in my experience are really weak. Um, the worst answers are those who say, like the Jehovah's Witnesses used to, they still do sort of, that the 144,000 are the only people that will be saved. And usually cults, and, and they're not the only ones, cults do this when they're small. When they're very small and they have a very small number of people following them, they like to say only 144,000 will be saved and it makes them feel good about being small. Okay, yeah, no Christians are really following us, but it doesn't matter because only 144,000 will be saved. As they grow bigger, they have to come up with new explanations. Okay, well, yeah, okay, so the Jehovah's Witnesses said, there's 144,000, they're the saved ones in heaven, and then there's like, the rest of us are still like, going to have the eternal life on paradise earth. And then, and, and but the best thing is to be one of the 144,000. But then times go by and they realize they have way more people now. The vast majority of the JWs are not part of the 144,000, like 99.9% .9 of the ones alive today wouldn't consider themselves part of this. So they try to talk about how they'd rather not be one of the 144. They'd rather be, you know, with on paradise earth in their view. So you can see the evolution of their attitude change as their numbers grow, which tells you what? They're making their theology up as they go along. I think they're Jews, which means there's going to be a great revival in, in, the, in the people of Israel before the second coming of Christ. And I'm excited about that. And that's consistent with what Romans teaches about the future of Israel. And I do have, in my, in my series on Romans, I do have topics on like, what's the future of Israel? Um, not the most, ex most clicked videos, but I think it's important content there about the prophetic statements in Romans 11 about the future of Israel. Skylight94 has a question. Number 10. Hi, Mike. Second Peter 2.6 is the example of Sodom and Gomorrah literal. Does it mean that on the final day of judgment, the ungodly will literally be condemned to extinction like they were? Um, Skylight94, I think your question dances on the issue. Let's go to the passage. Second Peter 2.6 of annihilationism. Second Peter 2.6. And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter. And if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, and he goes on. Um, here's why I wouldn't probably try to do, I'm just going to answer about this one verse, not the, not the whole overall issue of annihilationism, because I must admit, um, I don't understand the issue as well as I need to, <laughs> as my friend Chris Date has been telling me, Mike, just shut up about it <laughs> in a nice way. <laughs> and I'm like, well, there's some truth there. It's like my, my degree of confidence on this topic, even though I have a position, I'm like the traditional position. My degree of confidence on this topic is not super high because of my lack of research. So I want to be careful. I don't overstep my own knowledge, which I'm sure I have done in the past. But Second Peter uh, 2.5, right? There's two examples given in a row. And I think this, this will answer the question of how literally do I take the example in of Sodom and Gomorrah, does that mean that the, the, the ungodly will just get fire and that's the end of their existence? Um, I don't think we should do that, but it's, it's gives two examples. The first is God did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. So one example is God judges them with a flood. Second example is Sodom and Gomorrah with the destruction of fire. And well, these are two totally different kinds of judgments that are going on. I think the emphasis in Second Peter, this is a passage like the First John one. If you're an annihilationist, you will you will um, read the rest of your theology into this passage. If you're um, 
the uh, traditionalist, you're going to read the, that theology into this passage. My idea is that these two verses by themselves, they just say that the wicked will be judged and the righteous will be saved. That's it. That Noah was saved. Lot was saved. The wicked were judged. The wicked were judged. God's going to bring judgment upon them. That's the, that's the main point. And it's also talking about global issues here, um, about the, the, the fire that will destroy, you know, as God remakes the universe where righteousness dwells. There's my short answer. Hope I don't overstep my knowledge too much. Important issue that I'm going to dig into more in the future. Um, 11, question 11, new creation says, is the Athanasian creed biblical, specifically the first part, which seems to imply that one cannot be saved without believing in the doctrine of the Trinity? Um, this is probably too heavy of a question for me to answer off the cuff, to be completely honest, new creation. Uh, creeds, so generally speaking, two things I'll mention, uh, since I can't answer your question in detail, about creeds in general. Early, early church creeds, Okay, they're generally, there's some creeds that are agreed on by Christians today that we would largely be like, hey, if you're a Christian, you should be able to say, I agree with this. So that's, that's what these creeds are. Um, they're not the Bible. And I don't believe that they have the authority of the Bible. I don't think that they're, there are actually some people who believe that the creeds themselves are inerrant and that, or they treat them like they're inerrant and they act like they're sort of equal with scripture. Okay. I, I think that's an, and I've, I didn't even know this until recently. I actually heard some a, a theologian talking about it and I was like, what? There's actually that view. I no, I think they're accurate as much as they accurately reflect the teaching of the word of God. So, but I can agree with the creeds, these early creeds, and I can affirm them. I, I believe as far as I know, unless I've stu haven't studied something right. And, um, and the second thing you need to know is this, is that they use archaic language. The creeds use archaic language. Like there's in the creeds, we read things about the Catholic church, but I could say that creed and agree with it entirely. But the word Catholic just means universal, right? The Roman Catholic church, like the modern Roman Catholic church, like it just didn't mean that. That's, it's anachronistic to read some modern ideas into those ancient creeds. So you can like agree with the creeds, but also be aware of the danger of anachronism. Make sure you understand what they meant by the creed, not how uh, words have been changing over time. So that, those are my two cautions on the creeds. Uh, Mario Tucci says, greetings from Belgium. Greetings, Mario. I'm glad you're with us, man, live. I wonder what time it is in Belgium right now. It's got to be like uh, evening, sometime late, sometime in the evening, late at night there. Um, is it biblical to say that all temptation comes from Satan and the demonic or can temptation come from your sinful self? God bless you, Mike, and your ministry. Mario, this is a great question. And fortunately, one that I can answer more accurately than I'm answering some of the other ones today. Um, James chapter one answers this question exactly for us. So I will answer ahead of time by saying this. Most of your temptation isn't really Satan. But let me read this passage to you. Then I'll come back to where does Satan factor in when it comes to my temptation? How can I be like Satan's tempting me? What do I mean by that? Well, um, here in James chapter one, it says, let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God for God cannot be tempted by evil. And he himself does not tempt anyone, but each one is tempted. So, okay. That wasn't about Satan. That was about God. God's not the one tempting you. Verse 14, but each one is tempted when he's carried away by his and enticed by his own lust or his own desires. Now, this is key. See, because Satan could ask you to do anything. It doesn't make it tempting. What makes it tempting is your own desires. 
if Satan's like, Mike, mm, go lick that piece of poop over there. You know you want to. Like, I'm not tempted at all. But there's other things that if Satan were to present a thought to my mind or inspire someone to come up to me and offer me something that I would be tempted to do. That's where Satan's involvement is. Satan utilizes your wicked desires, your selfish desires, your sinful desires, and projects temptation at those desires. And I think that Satan and, and demons know what they're doing in this regard. They they know very quickly how to identify what people are more prone to different kinds of temptations and then to try to help present them with those temptations. But I would never yield to sin if it wasn't within me to do it already. This is sobering because it means that every wicked thing I've done, whether Satan was tempting me or not, was only tempting because I have wicked desires. So this is, each one is tempted when he's carried away by his, and enticed by his own lust, by his own desires. But you have not sinned when you've been tempted. Like temptation's not sin. Just because you've felt a desire to do something wrong doesn't mean you've actually sinned yet. When does it become sin? Verse 15 tells us, then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. There's always a cost to sin, but when lust has conceived, what is this? Well, with conception, the idea of conception, you have you have two to coming together. Like there's like a, to use the biological terminology, we'll use chicken and an egg. How's that? Because I don't know how old everyone is watching. Let's say you have an egg, but if you don't have a rooster, then the egg doesn't actually become a chicken. It's just an egg and you cook with it and all that. It won't actually turn into a chicken. In the same sense, you're like a chicken with an egg. There's like the the desire is there. The, the temptation is there. Uh, the rooster is your willpower in this analogy that I've hastily thrown together. <laughs> um, the rooster is your willpower. When your willpower, when you or your intentions turn to, I want... Okay, I'm yielding to it. I'm giving in. My heart is giving in. My will is giving in. That's when it becomes sin. How do I know this is happening? Because a look becomes a, a, a lingering look, a second look, a third look. Because uh, an idea becomes an action, right? Th that moment when desire turns into the, the marriage of my will with the desires, the wicked desires I'm having, that's when it becomes sin. So... Um, it's not just when the actions are taken, that's obviously sinful, but there's a stage before that where the willpower is yielded over to sin. I think that also becomes sinful. And I hope that answers your question. Satan may be in the mix, but the bigger issue is my own temptation, which is why I can always overcome the enemy because if, if through the power of Christ I can say no to myself, then I can say no to the enemy because he's only using my own, my own sinful desires. Now, here's a question from James M., number 13. Is there biblical support for having monarchies today? What attitude should we have toward monarchy specifically? Um, if you're in a monarchy, you honor the king. If you're not in a monarchy, you don't have a king. And I think the Christian faith is meant to fit in either scenario. And that's more the teaching that Christians need. Is not, here's the one proper way to do government. Right? There isn't, in my opinion... There isn't, to my knowledge, any biblical method of government that this is exactly how it should be done. There are several principles, and those principles can be played out in different kinds of governments. And sometimes the principles work better in some governments and worse in other governments. Um, 
there are, are certain things like uh, like the requirement of a, of a government to be just and fair and to enforce laws equally regardless of people's race or uh, wealth or power in, in society. That should be irrelevant to the enforcing of laws. Uh, there's an area where I feel like our court system in the U.S. is not doing well. Right, we we should do well. We're supposed to do well, but the involvement of lawyers that you can, whoever can pay more, can get the better lawyer, can get away with more. That that skews things towards the rich, um, and that's unfortunate. So there, there's principles like that. But when it comes to like whether you have a king or not, I don't think it's super relevant. Um, Israel did have no king for a while, and that was God's preference, a theocracy. But a modern country can't be a theocracy because God's not actually taking ownership of any of these countries, right? Like. God gave Moses the Ten Commandments. He's like, here's your laws. Well, when God says, hey, country, here's your laws, then we can have a theocracy. Until then, all we have is humans pretending they're a theocracy, which is really scary. Someone pretending that they're in the place of God when they're not. Um, that's scary. So we, we can't have a theocracy until Jesus comes back. We can only have individual theocracies where Jesus is my Lord, but I can't make him the Lord of an entire nation. It just doesn't function that way. I can try to honor him with the nation's laws, but I can't make him the source of the laws because he's not giving us those laws. If it's a monarchy, though, there's a way to honor God in a monarchy. If it's not, yeah. I, I think Christianity should be able to fit in any of these cultures. If you're a king, the, the scripture would have instructions on how to be a better king. Um, doesn't tell you whether you have to have one or not. Let's look at uh, Luce, uh, Lucy or Luci or something, L-U-C-E. Your question is, what is your view on the creation account given in Genesis? Some people hold to a young earth, but with modern science, it seems unlikely. Questions then arise, such as, did Adam and Eve exist? Um, when it comes to the Genesis stuff, again, I'm I'm just honestly not sure. Um, but, but, and let, me, let me put it out this way, because I feel like I immediately run into a lot, like a lot of people, are, their tension gets up and they're like, my is being asked about this question. Um, but again, first off, this is just my thoughts and my opinions. I don't have a teaching on this topic that I can present to you because I don't have it solid in my own mind. But I separate it into two separate questions, and I think this is very valuable. There is the question of science, and there is the question of exegesis. The question of science, which, which um, they're both important questions. Um, archaeology, geography, you know, paleontology, all these, you know, plate tectonics, like these types of questions we want to ask. Um, we want to ask about those things. Then separately, as a separate, not because religion separate than science, that has nothing to do with what I'm saying here. But separately, I want to ask the question exegetically, what, what interpretive options are there for Genesis? What is Genesis telling us in Genesis 1 through 11? This is where I'm interested, okay? The science thing is not my area. I'm not going to focus on that. Um, so you ask about that, I'm not going to, I don't have a comment. Genesis though, are there honest and fair interpretations of Genesis that say seven day creation 6,000 years ago? Is it, is that an honest and fair and consistent interpretation of Genesis? Is that what God intended us to think when he, when he inspired it? Uh, what about like John Walton's view? Uh, Walton who, who takes like, em emphasizes like sort of temple language and that creation isn't the bringing into existence of these things, but it's giving them names and functions. And that until something had a name and a function, it didn't really exist. And I think, I think that view kind of like, I'm like not really on board with that view, but at least it's exegetical. Like at least the guy's trying to say, what does Genesis say? He's not, he's not starting far as I can tell with science uh, going, my science forces me. Now I'm going to change my interpretation of the Bible. Instead, 
um, he's he's interpreting it differently. Then there's um, William Lane Craig's view, which probably of all the views I've heard, having not fully vetted this issue, his is one of the most interesting to me if you listen to it carefully. And he starts by suggesting that Genesis, and I'll share it because it's relatively new perspective, at least newly popularized perspective, that Genesis um, is a, a certain genre, not the whole book, but one chapters one through eleven, and we do, and most people will agree chapters one through eleven is different than the rest of Genesis. That, that this is one book, but there's different genres within the book. Okay, that's not really that controversial at all. But he's going to try to identify the genre as um, something he. I think mistakenly calls mytho history. I, I I really think this is a bad. I think it's going to constantly hurt him sharing his opinion here because people think the word myth means something he doesn't even mean by it. Um, he doesn't mean it was a myth. He doesn't mean that. I just wish they wouldn't use that word. So I'm going to call archetypal history. So it's like an archetypal history where you you focus on historical events that happen in Genesis that are like archetypal of um, uh, truths in creation. Now, I know that sounds kind of vague and it's a long view to explain, but let me just say this. I think that the way he's doing his study, if he's successful, because he's writing a book on it, it's going to come out relatively soon, I think. The way he's doing his study, I find very interesting and I find it appealing to me because it starts with trying to establish that there's a legitimate genre here showing that there's other works from around the time period that that reinforce the genre and demonstrating things like elasticity in the text uh, not in the text but in the in the um in the telling of the creation account and flexibility and those are technical terms that i think are very interesting that let's just say i think he's building a strong case for what may be a viable view on genesis um the reason why i'm open to these other views even though I don't think John Walton's right, but at least I'm open to hearing it, why I'm not just staunchly in the camp of young earth creationist, which I used to be. Like I used to be. In fact, you won't find this anywhere. Here's a study I taught. When was this? In 2010 on the topic of the days of creation, the six days of creation. And it's 10 years later. And I'm like, I wonder what I said 10 years ago on this issue. I'm going to listen to this. I found it not long ago. And I'm like, I'm going to listen to it to see what, what Mike said 10 years ago on the topic. Having looked into it more, here's the thing that, that popped my bubble. I honestly think that some of the talking points that I heard from Answers in Genesis in particular on the use of yom, the Hebrew word yom, that those things were not accurate. Now, maybe I'm wrong, but I care about the text. I want to be be held to what scripture is really teaching. And when they talked about how it has to be 24-hour days because of ABC, well, some of those points were not accurate in my view. And that changed my perspective. Like when he says, well, when it has the ordinal, right? And it has the number. It's always a a 24-hour day. And it turns out that that is not actually the case. Like with the use of the word yom. That isn't a rule of Hebrew usage of yom. Okay, so I'm open to some other views. And, there's, and there may be indications, this is what William Lane Craig was talking about that kind of got me. There may be indications in Genesis 1 and 2 that wasn't meant to be taken that way. And, uh, but I've, I've probably said too much, only because I haven't finished my own study of this topic. So, last question you asked, Lucy, I'll say Lucy because I'm not sure how to pronounce your name. Did Adam and Eve exist? And the answer here is yes. Right. Even if I'm not sure what Genesis is saying, it's not as though Adam and Eve didn't exist. It seems to me a wild stretch to suggest they didn't exist at all. Right. There is a historical thing going on here, even if it's not trying to give you a play by play of exact historical accuracy. Um, And 
all, further, the New Testament affirms the existence, the actual physical existence of Adam and Eve. And so I don't think that's a question that's that's up for debate in my opinion. Adam and Eve actually existed. That's the exegetical view. Um, the timing of it, that's the part that I'm not sure about. Levi Fox has a question. Number 15, um, where, where Old Testament believers born again, were Old Testament believers, can they be called during their lives children of God as Christians can be nowadays? Um, I, I think that they were, like Abraham was called a friend of God. Specifically, that term was used that he was a friend of God. The term children of God is used of Israel as a nation, yet it seems different, doesn't it? It is different than the usage in the New Testament of a, us being individually children of God. So, they were corporately called children of God, even if individuals amongst them were not saved. So it wasn't a statement of salvation. It was about national calling. So were they born again? Um, they experienced some real, real kind of relationship with God, some real salvation that was going on. But, but it seems different. And probably the number one difference you can point to clearly in the New Testament is the indwelling, the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So this is something that happens not even during Jesus's ministry, but at the end, right? After the death and resurrection of Christ, we are given the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is like, hey, it's good that I go to the Father because I will send to you the helper. And the Holy Spirit comes and he will dwell with you. He will be in you. This is a future thing, right? That This is not something that's already happening. This is kind of the nature of the church. The church is individuals who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We're not talking about the sort of the charismatic uh baptism of the spirit or or that sort of thing we're talking about a permanent relational indwelling of the holy spirit that is experienced post cross so that would be the big difference does that mean that the people who weren't experiencing it weren't saved no um they were at least in a position where they would be born again and i'm not sure how to parse it all out except that what's clear is the holy spirit indwelling is a New Testament reality, not an Old Testament one. When the Holy Spirit comes upon somebody in the Old Testament, it's usually for a time, for a season, and for a purpose. So when David gets the Holy Spirit, it's not, I don't think, for salvation, not that he wasn't saved, he was, but it's rather the Holy Spirit anointing him for his his calling as king, his position as king. And so when he's like, don't take your spirit from me, I think it even has to do with not losing that calling as king to be um, in that mission to serve God in that way in Israel. And so we have the Holy Spirit coming upon somebody to to do something, a task, um, to accomplish something powerful. The upon experience was in the Old Testament, but not the indwelling experience. That's new. Number 16, Ninja Tank 25 says, and I'm going to move quick now because I just saw the times, 202. Our nerdy hobbies, such as comics, movies, games, tabletop and video games, etc., reconcilable with Christianity, or should we discard them and use our time in other ways? Um, in a nutshell, here's my view. Um, play is good. Play is wonderful. Play is nice. We don't have anything in scripture that says that play is bad. And play includes nerdy hobbies. But your play can become bad. Your play can become bad. So the rule I have in my head is the verse, and, I, and I'm, I'm going to use it in a slightly flexible fashion, so forgive me, but it helps remind me of a principle. God says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. The Sabbath was a day of rest, a day of enjoyment, a day of fun. It was not meant to just be like a stoic day of sitting still all day long. It was, it was meant to be a good day, a day off from labors. And so this would be a day you'd sit down and read, a, if, if you had comics back then, you'd read a comic, you know, but keep it holy is what he said. 
And so I'll just say this. Yeah, you could do movies, games, tabletop and video games. You can do all that. It's not only reconcilable with Christianity. It's something you can thank God for. Thank you, God, for football. Thank you, God, for my my enjoyment of comic books and video games and all this stuff. If you, A, keep it holy by using it in moderation, and B, keep it holy by not allowing impure and ungodly things to take root in your engagement of those activities. So this might change what comics you can read, right? Because comics are more and more covered with scantily clad fellows and, and ladies and more and more sexual elements are involved in games. Um, I don't really game much, but I used to. But now when I look at new games, I go, wow, they've added a lot of carnality. There's a lot more sexual things going on in these games. And you have to ask yourself, is it holy here? So the problem is not play. The problem is not nerdy stuff. The problem is where sin starts to take root in those things through either overuse because you're doing it too much or through um, impurities that enter into the things themselves. When I get together with my guys and we watch football, I always drink too much. Okay, well, that's that's sinful, right? Football is not the problem here. It's, it's the behaviors around it then in that situation. Um, number 17, Derek Johnson. My pastor teaches little gods from the word of faith. I have disagreed with him in private conversation about this, and he's firm in his belief. How important is this issue to salvation? Um, Derek, if your pastor teaches that we are little gods, as I understand that teaching, I know it's, I think it's a minority teaching in the word faith movement, but, but I don't know how extensive it is. But if your pastor teaches that, I think, I think, and I'm going to be very, I rarely say this, but I think that I would actually leave that fellowship. I, I think that that is a very scary teaching. I don't know what he teaches about it. So I'm just guessing, right? But if your pastor's teaching the things that are in my head, when you say little gods, then I would leave that fellowship. I would break my heart, but I would, I would find a new place to be because you've already approached him. You've already talked to him. You've already tried to correct him. And he's like, nope, I'm going to keep teaching it. Um, that's a real serious concern in my mind. And um, I'm, I'm sorry, Derek, that, that does my two cents on it. Please get counsel from other people. Don't just take my two cents and run with it here. Get some advice from other people whom you respect, who are godly, uh, reach out to some people. There's multitude uh, wisdom in a multitude of counselors. And that's the, my last word to you on that. Get some more encouragement. Is it a salvation issue? Um, let's just say it's close enough that it scares me. Uh, that's all I can say about that. Uh, Pandiario number one says in uh, question number 18, how does Israel in the Bible correlate to the present, to the present day political state of Israel are the promises for Israel meant for Israel today? So I think it's the same Israel. I think that Israel, I mean, Israel has to do with the, both the descendants, the physical descendants of Abraham, but also the land itself. And so are you talking about the people or the land? Okay. Well, as many, as much as the people are descendants of Abraham, it's about them as much as the, um, land is the same land that God gave to them. It's about the land. But I think that um, the gospel is primarily going to the Gentiles till the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. And then there's going to be this renewed work of God amongst Israel. And I do think we'll see God's promises fulfilled towards Israel, even physically in this world. But that doesn't mean that Israel is the good guy in every situation. And Israel is one we should support no matter what they're doing or saying. And there's sometimes when evangelicals like myself can be naive about Israel. Well, Israel did this. It was good. <laughs> like, that, like that's the scenario. Well, have you read the Bible? <laughs> how many how many times Israel's doing crazy things that are just wicked? And what I should say is there's Israel 
they are not submitting to God. They're not honoring God. His promises are waiting for one day. They will be fulfilled. His promises to them. And again, I talk about that in my Roman series where I get into the future of Israel, God's prophetic statements about Israel. And um, I think my attitude towards Israel should be my attitude towards every nation where I consider what they're doing and I think thoughtfully about it and I'm critically examining it to understand the right and wrong of it. But with an awareness that God's going to do a future thing in that country and in those people, that is a beautiful, wonderful thing. And so I'm hopeful and I'm excited for them. And I can't wait for them to enlarge, be uh, recognizing their Messiah. Number 19. Nienke says, hi, Mike, is there a difference between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven? If yes, can you explain it for me? Um, to me, I, so I actually have done a study on this where I, I look through the gospels and I gathered all these examples of kingdom of God and kingdom of heaven. And I held them up next to each other. And I tried to come up with definitions of kingdom of God versus kingdom of heaven, giving a different definition to each one. And then, and then the way you test a definition like this is you read that definition in every passage and you say, does it make sense in context? So is maybe kingdom of God is more about um, people who are on the, in the world right now and they're saved. So they're part of God's kingdom. But the kingdom of heaven is about like that future reality when, when heaven meets earth and there's, you know, Jesus is Lord on the earth. Um, nope, didn't work. <laughs> like all my, all my interpretations or my definitions of kingdom of God versus kingdom of heaven just didn't work. And I eventually threw my hands up and gave up. So my current view is that kingdom of God and kingdom of heaven are basically synonyms and that we're not really meant to find great significance in the usage of God versus heaven at the end of the phrase kingdom of. So that's my, my perspective on that. I'm interested if it, someone else has a definition that you think holds fast in every example of kingdom of God versus kingdom of heaven. I'm totally interested in seeing that. Put it in your comments below. John Ernest has a question. Last one for today. What do you think of dual covenant theology? The belief that Jews can be saved without believing in Jesus due to their special covenant with God. I think that that, um, as I understand it, that that covenant, that theology goes like completely against the clear teachings of the New Testament, right? My confidence level is very high here. <laughs> that the New Testament is is very clear. Um, let me take us to a specific passage about exactly this. And this is in Romans chapter 10. Interesting how much Romans has come up. Do you guys know I have an entire 40 something, 50 week study through the book of Romans. That's like 50 videos on the topic. And we go verse by verse through the whole book and it's all available online. You can get it on biblethinker.org or on my, on my website uh, or on, um, excuse me, on my YouTube channel under playlists. Anyway, Romans 10 Here's what Paul says about unbelieving Israel. No dual covenant theology here. He says, brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is their salvation. For I testify about them. They have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. So there's a zeal for God. So don't be like, well, look at how much they love God or how zealous they are for God. So they must be saved. Well, Paul doesn't think so. He thinks your zeal can be genuine, but it can be misplaced. And it's not according to knowledge. Verse three, for not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, their own goodness. They did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Not that he's the end of the end of the law. Like a, a, a Jew who comes to Christ can't continue obeying the law. They can't. We, in the book of Acts, we have that. I have a study on the, 
the obedience of the law amongst Jews and Gentiles throughout the book of Acts. It's important in my Hebrew Roots series. But is the end of the law for righteousness anyways? Then he goes on and talks about this stuff in more detail. But the bottom line is this. Israel and the Jews today don't have an alternate path to salvation apart from Jesus Christ. And those who were saved before they heard of Christ, they were believing in the things which would have caused them to believe in Jesus had they met him. Meaning that, that when in the afterlife, when they first put their eyes on Jesus, they're believing him, in him immediately. This is evidenced in John, in the, in the Gospel of John, where Jesus says that the reason that many of the Jews are rejecting Jesus is because they haven't truly been believing in God in a biblical fashion. They haven't really been believing Moses. When he says, if you believed Moses, you would believe me because he wrote of me. Right? If they had had real faith, if you want to say dual covenant, if they had real faith in that original covenant and in the original message of God, they would believe in, in Jesus. So if you have a modern person who says that they're a faithful Jew and they believe in the Old Testament, but they reject Jesus, then they don't really believe Moses based upon Jesus' own words. I'm saying that that dual covenant theology thing, which I've heard from people over the years, um, is harmful, is harmful to the uh, to evangelism to Jewish people to outreach there are those who swear off outreach to Jewish people I will not convert them I will not convert a Jew well, you're not converting you're just sharing with him the the truth of the Messiah that they've always been waiting for like how do we even call this conversion I mean they're being born again so they have to be born again but they're not changing religions except that they're getting true Judaism in the Messiah and so that's that is it Jesus is the whole deal he's the whole story and he's the one you need too. If you're watching today and you don't know Christ, it's time for you to believe in him. Repent and know that he has paid for your sin, like all the sins you've ever committed, washed clean by the blood of Christ. Just that all the guilt, all the shame, and the time of loneliness in your life where you didn't know the love of God, it's over. You trust in Christ. He died for you. He rose again from the dead. And you believe and you trust in him and you get it for free because you realize he is so righteous. I can never be good enough. He has to wash me and give me his righteousness. And that's what he does through Jesus Christ. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. When I share Jesus with a Jewish person, I'm, I'm sharing Messiah with Messiah's people. And um, anybody who tries to limit that is making a, a major mistake. So here's the plan going forward. This coming month, I mean, I, I've got one video Monday I'm going to be doing in the Mark series. That's like the last Mark video for this year. So Monday we're doing the Mark series, then I'm going to pick up in January. The reason I'm taking a break is because, and this I'm very excited about, in December I'm doing several interviews of scholars who are part of the Passion Project. And if you don't know, the Passion Project is me after having made videos refuting the Passion Translation, showing major problems with it, but getting responses from some people. But Mike, where's your credentials? I want more scholarly. Guess what I've done? I've hired scholars to review the Passion Translation, and I'm interviewing them with their results in December, early December. I'm going to start doing the interviews. I'll edit them, and I'll start uploading them as I'm able. I hope to get five of these interviews done in December, and I'm going to put them all up on my YouTube channel for you guys to see, to share, to give to other people. People need to know how bad the passion translation is okay now i'm not i didn't pay them to say anything negative i i hired them to be honest so i don't even know for sure all the things they're going to share you're going to find out when you watch their videos they're not it's not a hit hit piece thing it's about getting this is what excites me 
It's about getting an accurate understanding and perspective on this very problematic translation that Bill Johnson just keeps endorsing everywhere he goes. In fact, he keeps showing up on my Facebook page, right? As I go to Facebook, there's Bill Johnson telling me to buy the Passion Translation over and over again. Man. Well, we're going to fix that. <laughs> so anyways, thank you guys so much for joining and God bless you. I will see you Monday at 1 p.m. Pacific time. That's when I'm doing the next live stream. And I'm going to try and do a stream on my second YouTube channel, YouTube Tactics. Pretty soon here. I want to talk about thumbnails and titles and some strategies for all that kind of stuff. I think that's all I got for you. Go check out the Roman series if you uh, want to go Bible binge.